Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And when he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made it into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us into these spaces this morning. And would you be so gracious, Father, as to give us your Holy Spirit to illumine us that we would understand the very word of God that has just been read. Father, thank you that you welcome any and all of us by grace and grace alone because of what Jesus has done, living for us, living with us, dying for us, rising again. Jesus, would your presence be very near to us this morning and all of your forgiving and renewing power. Do a good work in our midst here, we pray, O Lord. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. You can be seated. I'm a Liberty Homer. I am a Homer for the Liberty Network. Some of you know that long before I was a pastor within the Liberty Network, I was an admirer, not from too far, back in the very early days. And Eric had mentioned that Hubers, our network director, Steve, and his wife, Christine, are here this morning. For a lot of years in the early 2000s, when I was pastoring at a different non-Liberty church in Philadelphia, I would go to the staff meetings week after week after week. Those were precious days to me. And I was captivated from the very beginning of the first Liberty church by the distinctives and core values of every Liberty Church. What should churches do? Well, we should live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus wherever God has placed us. What do we value? Well, our three core values are worship, community, and mercy. I love those distinctives and those core values so much that when I moved from Philadelphia to do a church plant in Texas, I brought those core values with me. So our membership packet with this little church plant in Texas On the page about what is the Christian life, it described worship, community, and mercy with a little footnote. These core values come from Liberty Church in Philadelphia. So, David Hasselhoff, 
big in West Germany, Liberty Church, big in West Texas. It's about the same. And so to this day, I love worship, community, and mercy. But as I pondered these things over the years, I am committed, as I ever have been, to these core values. The context around these core values has changed and shifted over time, particularly as it relates to community. And in my opinion, we are now two levels removed, two phases removed, from the original context in which the First Liberty Church was planted. At least in my opinion, it goes something like this. First Liberty Church, 20 years ago, and like I had already written this before I knew that the Hubers were coming. Steve, you can come up and grab the mic for me at any time and say this is not how it happened at all. Worship Community Mercy, 20 years ago, the First Liberty Church in the Fairmount area and also Northern Liberties directed towards young people coming back into the city, whether graduate students or young professionals. And if you can remember way back that far, that was before the internet, that was before social media, that was before dating apps, that was before some millennial shifts in workplace practices where back then it was expected that you would work as many hours as possible for your job and you're not supposed to have a social life outside of that. Community was really hard to come by in the city. You move from all over the country, all over the world. I don't know anybody right now in Philadelphia, this big, huge, world metropolitan city. I need community. The church is here for it, and it's great. So community was a win. Community was compelling. And it still is, but here's another level of difference or complexity added to that original context. And you've heard me talk about this level in particular before. So community, over the past 20 years, what's happened? Everybody's into community now. And for a lot of organizations and sorts of things that didn't used to think about community at all, now they're all over community. So coffee shops or cafes, not just about the latte, not just about the double frappa mochaccino, it's about community. Gyms, CrossFit studios, yoga studios, not just about getting your body in shape, but it's about the community that you find there. Businesses, one of my favorite shops on the planet is right here in Collingswood on Haddon Avenue, Occasionette. There's actually two different Occasionette branches on Haddon Avenue. Shopping there for Christmas in December with what I bought in the little gift bag, there was a card put in, a company credo, we believe, and it talked a ton about this is the community that we try to practice here. And now there's social media too, and we can have discussions about the quality of community that we find in digital spaces and social media vis-a-vis -vis in person, but community's there. And all that means that over the years here at Liberty Collingswood, as we continue here to try to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, hey, when anybody likes some community, I feel a little bit like King Arthur and Monty Python in the search for the Holy Grail when they go to the castle with all the French people and say, hey, can you help us come find the Holy Grail? And the French people say, oh, no, we, we will not come and help you because, you see, we've already got one. It's very nice. Hey, do you want some community? Everybody else says, we already have a ton of it. And Collingswood in particular has very communal community. And so, at least some of the time, trying to do mission here in Collingswood, I do a little bit of the Charlie Brown hunched shoulders, 
walking through town, nobody wants my community, so it's, liberty is here, time for joy and cheer. Everybody is already set with all the community that they need, and what do we have to actually add to it? Now there's a different level as well. Doing human community together now has become more complex and more problematized and problematic for a new set of factors that have come on people's radars in increasing degrees. And we treat each of these things with respect and on their own terms. So a couple of factors, race, racism. How do we do community in the midst of the racial reckoning in which our country has faced over the past couple of years? Back in Lent last year, we spent a whole segment, a whole liturgical season talking about race and racism and systemic injustice. And that's not a one-and-done conversation. We need to go back and continue to say, how do we do community in the midst of these dynamics? You've also heard me talk about before tribalization and polarization, where it's really hard to do community if you're in community with other people that have different ideological and political commitments than you do. Wait a second, we're not on the same page with this and this and this. You expect me to be in relationship with you? That makes community really hard. And then another set of factors as well, gender identification and sexuality. When you try to do community together, but there are different perspectives within that community when it comes to gender identification and sexuality, within that set of community, people are going to start to feel unseen, potentially attacked, and everything is at risk in a community where these things are up in the air. And so community breaks down and fractures. And last fall, I believe it was a sermon in late October, I devoted a whole sermon to transgender identification and those sets of issues. This morning, I'd like to talk more specifically about human sexuality. And I understand whether for people in the room or watching online, Certainly in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, nobody doesn't have opinions about these things. We feel these things related to human sexuality very personally, very deeply, and there are a lot of, of hurts related to this set of issues as well. And the reason that I want to talk about it here this morning is verse 24 from our text. I feel like it raises the question. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In a context like this, in the late modern West, don't you have the question when you read verses like this, well, wait a second. What is if a person that leaves a father and a father, or a mother and a mother, or a man leaves parents and cleaves to another man, or a woman to another woman? What do we do about those things? How, how do we face them? And look, I'm not trying to pick fights or, you know, start arguments with anybody, but I think it just is raised by the text here. And in our In Covenant packet for our membership here at Liberty Collingswood, we say in there, here at Liberty, and this is true for all of the Liberty churches, we don't hide from or avoid complex, controversial issues, but we want to embrace them and engage conversations about them with respect and with the dignity that these questions deserve, doubly so with our Represence Initiative, where whether it's last year or this year, I'm doing the best that I can to go to the scriptures and equip you for Christian discipleship. You know, it's up to you to believe what you want to believe. I'm not a priest. I'm not the Lord over your souls. The ball's still in your court, but I want to do my part 
to say, here is how I interpret the scriptures about such things. But for a text like this, and a topic like this, is there only hurt and horror and terror to come from this passage in Genesis? Or could there possibly be beauty as well? Lord, illumine us by your spirit, like we prayed a couple of minutes ago at the beginning for the rest of the sermon from here. Two parts. We're going to talk about community. Then we're going to talk about sexuality. Then we're going to go back to community. So a community sandwich. Half a point community, then sexuality, then back to community. So it has been a minute thinking about community here this morning. Liberty Collingswood, like I said at the very beginning, since we've been in this Genesis sermon series, we're resuming it now. Last we had it in November. We're going to be here until the Lenten season again at the beginning of March. Just a very fast refresher. Genesis 1, cosmic origins. Genesis chapter 2, human origins. And we went from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 2. It's been a lot of fun so far. And as a refresher, specifically from November, we saw in Genesis chapter 2 that on the seventh day, God rested. So we said, that's a pattern, that's a paradigm for us to rest. How do we be people that aren't just spread thin all the time? How can we find Sabbath rest in our own lives? We talked about that in our home meeting module, Practices of Presence. And then we saw that God had placed Adam in the Garden of Eden to work. And so we spent a sermon talking about work and vocation. That's a pattern and a paradigm for us there. Then we heard God telling Adam, okay, you see all of these trees and all of this fruit, it's all great except for the fact that of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So last sermon before our Advent sermon series was talking about that's a pattern or a paradigm for God's revelation to us. What do we do about the Bible? And so we're picking it up here. God has done so much creating so far. It feels like everything is coming together so well which is exactly what makes the first verse of this text sound so jarring. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. It's not good. Especially if you go back and read Genesis 1 and 2, in light of the refrain that took those same words in the exact opposite direction. God made this over here. He saw it, and it was good. And then it was evening and morning, the first day, the second day, the third day. He made this, he saw it was good. He made this, he saw it was good. And then he made all things by the end of the sixth day. He saw that it was very good. And so you hear the gears grinding all of a sudden. It's not good. Why on earth is it not good? Because it's not good that man, that human beings should be alone. God says, I will make a helper for him. Human community is so vital in God's plan for all things, including humanity, that is good as life, the universe, and everything, all of the cosmos is. If there's not human community, life still isn't good. And that's why in verses 19 and 20, the parade of animals to be named for Adam is a little bit bittersweet. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But 
for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. An ancient rabbinic gloss or interpretation of this passage, it's a reflection quote for you at the beginning of the worship folder. An ancient rabbi said, it's as if Adam is seeing here as he sees paired animals, animal community everywhere. It's as if he's saying, everything has its partner. But I, I have no partner. And so we can see the joy and relief as this partner is created in the following verses, 21 and 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Human community is founded. And we hear the joy as well in verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The second time in the Hebrew Bible so far, the Old Testament, that we encounter poetry and the first words that we hear from a human being. The second time that we encounter poetry, the first time also related to the creation of humanity. When God created Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, a different perspective on the same story. Genesis chapter 1, so God created man in his own image. In his own image, God created him. Male and female, he created them. That's poetry because humanity is so awesome that prose can't contain it. And so it is again here with the creation of woman and the first words of a human being. Again, poetry, because this is so awesome. Human community is crucial to God's plan for us as human beings. And there are concentric circles of a lot of different implications here. We're actually not going to talk about all of them here this morning. So as it relates to stuff men and women, what does helper mean, and family stuff. We're going to press pause on this until Genesis chapter 5, where there's a long genealogy there. I'm going to come back to family stuff because it's a genealogy. So we see in a general sense here, however, that community is really, really important. Authored by God, recorded in Genesis, and reinforced by virtually every culture throughout the world and for all ages. We need each other. If you're somebody that's still exploring Christianity and might be a little bit skeptical, hey, does this fit? Is this true? Don't you agree with the living Lord here in Genesis chapter 2? It is not good for us to be alone. The fact that we get lonely sometimes when we don't have the community that we need, that's God's authorship of us. That's the image of God barking because we have been made to be with each other. I've referenced before, I see this being referenced a lot of different places. The Harvard study of adult development was an ongoing study, sometimes called the Grant Study. It studied about close to 400 people, which is not a huge sample size, but it's literally the longest study in the history of the world where this close to 400 people have been studied since birth, and they're getting to be about 80 years old now. So for the it's less than, it's getting closer to 300 or so as people die. Probably shouldn't have laughed there, but anyway, I'm going to keep going. For their whole lives, this group of people is studied. And the bottom line, the director of this whole study says the most important thing for a human being to have is community. He puts it this way, good relationships keep us happier and healthier, period. Period. Community. Now let's talk more specifically about human sexuality. 
as it relates to, to this passage. At different points within the past year, we've taken different aspects of the secular creed sign that you sometimes see in yards, a lot of them here in Collingswood, and we just bring it back to the scriptures. And I think there's more affinity biblically with some of those parts of the slogan than, than others, but over the past year, we've weighed the slogan, Black Lives Matter. Back in the fall, we talked about days of creation and science is real. How does that comport or not with the biblical perspective? A lot of these signs have something about water or environment. So we've talked about environment and environmentalism. We've talked about those things, but arguably the most important part of that secular creed, that sign, is what? In big letters at the bottom, love is love. Love is love. And that's a slogan that has the limitations of a slogan. Love is love. The idea here is let's live and let live and Whatever you want to do with love and sexuality, it's completely up to you. There, there are limits even on its own terms. So if you would have sexual relations with a minor or a child, you can't tell a judge, well, judge, love is love. Okay, so there are limits. And even though polyamory is becoming more of a thing, old school polygamy, on the other hand, you can't tell a judge if you're a guy and you have multiple wedded wives, love is love. So there are still limits to this, which indicates to me that even though on the surface, love is love seems to indicate, okay, we're coming out of a period in human history where sexuality has been so repressed and so shackled all the time, we just want to release all of these boundaries. To me, that's not quite the whole truth, because instead, what we have right now, and you might agree with this, or you might disagree, you might think it's good, or you might think it's not good, but more accurately, I think you'd say that there is a radical redefinition of sexual norms that are afoot. One of the preachers that I like to listen to, there are some of you in this room that have been to this church, uh, John Mark Comer, Bridgetown Community Church in Portland, Oregon. So he's about my age, so both John, John Mark Comer is a very young man, and he tells a story as it relates to, to human sexuality. He was a high schooler in the 90s, and he grew up in a Christian home, and he had mostly non-Christian friends, and, and his friends knew, okay, I, it is my goal as a follower of Jesus that I'm not going to have sex until I get married. And even though I am primarily attracted to women, if I wasn't otherwise, I would seek to marry a woman. And I shouldn't look at pornography because that's, that's not what God wants for me either. So I'm going to live this particular kind of life. That's my goal. And Comer relates that for all of his secular non-Christian friends in that context, and this is true of me as well, he would get teased and razzed for being a goody two-shoes. But he said at the same time, among those friends, there was a recognition, yeah, you're probably doing the right thing. I should probably do that too, but I don't think I have the willpower to be as good as you. What a radical shift from high school in the 90s to now where that type of idea, I think culturally speaking, and, and maybe you have some sympathies in this direction as well, that's not a good idea at all. That's repressive, that's toxic, that's hateful. Why on earth would you do that? Don't do that in any bit. Stop it. And I've heard pastors also say that a foot in our country right now is something akin to a new sexual hegemony or a sexual empire. Love is love is not the same thing as live and let live. Live and let live would be, okay, just do your own thing. We're going to let people, you know, even if you disagree, that's fine. But disagreement has no quarter anymore. It's not live and let live. It's you need to go in this direction. Here's a thought experiment. Collingswood Public Schools. And 
All my kids are in the Collingswood Public School. We are fans of the public school system, not throwing the public school system under the bus here. All those qualifiers, it's, it's a symptom of what's going on more largely in culture. Say, for example, there's a child at the high school that goes to a guidance counselor and says, I've suspected and felt this for a long time, but I am beginning to tell people now that, that I'm same-sex attracted, and I'm going to pursue that direction now and in the future in my life. Do you have resources for me? Can you help me? Will you give me a platform? Can you help me to share my story and invite others on this path with me? By and large, I think our school system and many like that, at least on the East and West Coast right now, would say yes. We will marshal all the resources we can for you to feel supported and celebrated and affirmed and platformed. Child number two goes to a guidance counselor, same school. I've known for a while that I am same-sex attracted, and I've done a lot of reading and praying and talking with people. Because I'm a follower of Jesus, I am going to choose for my life, it's going to be really hard, not to act on those sets of sexual desires and live singly and celibately or marry a person of the opposite sex because I'm so convicted that this is what Jesus wants for me. Can I tell my story? Can I invite other people on a similar path? I believe that that student would be told no. It could even constitute hate speech. And if that student would tell that story, there would be a firestorm of controversy in that school. All that is to say there is a new set of right and wrong answers even when science doesn't back it up. So there is study after study after study that says pornography usage is detrimental to a person's actual sexual life and sexual functioning. But it's been inculcated in us, no, pornography is healthy. We can't say anything against doing that. And on top of the research, mountains of girlfriends and wives and boyfriends and husbands that say, I am deeply hurt by my partner using pornography we've got to say it's healthy. And there are studies as well that say the more sexual partners one has, the more decreased sexual satisfaction is. But that doesn't fit the narrative as well. And so we go in the other direction. There's a new empire afoot. And then we go to the scriptures, verse 24. The question is, is this normative or prescriptive? Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Is this prescriptive or normative in the sense that God's design for marriage is opposite-sex union? And I believe that the best way to read this passage in the scriptures is simply to say yes, for a couple of different reasons, including in this passage itself. Is this a paradigm? Is this prescriptive? Well, everything else in Genesis 1 and 2 so far is. God rested. That's a paradigm. That's a pattern for us. Adam works in the garden. That's a pattern. That's a paradigm for us. God speaks and we're to obey. That's a pattern. That's a paradigm for us. It wouldn't make sense to me if this one part is not. And part of the beauty of Genesis 1 and 2 so far is that there is this continual meeting of opposites where God and man, God and humanity come together. Heaven and earth are joined. Land with creatures. And here, man and woman coming together as opposites. And also, I think, procreation. 
without a heavy assist from, from science, it's only a male-female union that's procreative, over and over again in the early chapters of Genesis, be fruitful and multiply. That's part of God's plan for marriage and the human community as well. And the history of interpretation here is very interesting, if I could give you a little window in. In the 80s and 90s, when these topics started to become more contested, there was a minority group of Christians and Bible scholars that said, well, maybe it's possible that a love is love idea, polysexuality, could actually fit with an authentic and with integrity reading of the scriptures. And so that was tried for a long time. But my reading of history, history of interpretation right now is that that view has actually fallen out of scholarly favor, where there is more of a broad consensus now, whether you agree or disagree with the scriptures, and there are some scholars that vehemently disagree with the scriptures, but there's consensus that says you really can't fit a love is love paradigm with what the Bible says about these things. You either need to say one is right and the other is wrong, or vice versa. And another reason why I'm reluctant to leave the traditional or orthodox position historically as it comes to the church on sexuality is that this, this set of views is really, really new. There are plenty of other disagreements within the church where there's been going back and forth for hundreds of years. I'm far more open-handed about these things. So baptism, should we baptize babies or not? Women in ministry and ordination or the relationship of church to state Lots of people have read the scriptures, come to different conclusions for literal centuries about these things. I'm open-handed. But whether it's the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Protestant Church, the Church in the North, the Church in the South, the Church in the East, the Church in the West, the Church of Ancient Times, the Church of the Middle Ages, the Church of Now, it is only until incredibly recently that this has not been the virtual unanimous position of the Church throughout the ages. And I'm afraid of being an early adopter with something like this. And this is a position that's affirmed throughout the Old Testament by Jesus himself, who quotes this passage, by the Apostle Paul, and throughout the New Testament. And it's been observed, well, the context is so different now. We live in a polysexual reality here in the West that's so different from back then. That's actually not completely the case, whether it's the Old Testament context or the New Testament context deeply polysexual back then, whether it's the Gentile pagan nations around the nation of Israel, or especially even more than that, the Greco-Roman world. There are things that Greco-Roman people did sexually that are still illegal and still taboo today. So they were actually more progressive, arguably with sexuality, than we are today. I've also heard it said to me personally and otherwise, Jim, why are you so obsessed with sex if you have this view? Why is the Bible so obsessed with sex? And isn't it true that there's only a handful of passages that actually explicitly address the question of sexual orientation? To that later thing, I would say there is only a handful of passages, but to me they're evenly spaced between the Old and New Testament and sufficiently decisive and clear. And I feel the weight as well. Am I just on my own hang-up with this? So I actually went back this past week asking the question, am, am I over-interpreting the scriptures here? And this is what I came to as a conclusion again. I wouldn't say the scriptures are obsessed, but the scriptures are consistently interested in sexual comportment for human beings. Warnings against, quote-unquote, sexual immorality or lusts or passage of the flesh, different ways to say it, are all over the scriptures, all over the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament. 
And then also, I went back and checked the, the New Testament. So it's in Matthew, it's in Mark, it's in Luke, it's in John. It's in Acts at a key place where um, Acts 15, there's disagreements between Gentiles and Jewish people about the law, but then they say, hey, you need to abstain from sexual immorality. It's all over Paul, Romans, and First and Second Corinthians, and Galatians, and Ephesians. It's not in Philippians, but it's in Colossians. It's in First and Second Thessalonians. It's in First and Second Timothy. It's in Titus. It's not in Philemon. But then also in Hebrews, and then it's also in James, and it's also in First Peter and Second Peter, and it's in First John, not in Second and Third John. It's in Jude, and it's also in Revelation. It's all over the place. So in my opinion, to try to fit together a Christianity that at the same time says love is love, uh, God needs to take his hands off my own sexual decisions, to me that's simply unrecognizable as biblical religion. You see, the Bible, when it talks about sex, sex is positive and purposeful, both things. Stereotypically, culturally, the stereotype about sex in the Bible would be it's negative. It's not negative, it's positive. But for things that are really important and good, we need to like, think about how to use them well. And I would turn around and say that culturally speaking, sex is viewed positively but purposeless. To me, that's actually an undervaluing of human sexuality. And we're puritanical in a lot of other ways. Pastors have observed, okay, we want to say that you can do anything you want sexually, but then we're like really, really careful about what we eat and our diets and our bodies. So in some ways, we've just shifted limits in other directions. And I believe that one of the big lies with all of this, culturally speaking, is that you're only a full and whole person if, if you're sexually active in the way that you want to be. To me, that's a lie. And that goes back to the idea, you know, Da Vinci Code aside, Jesus was single and was not sexually active. Do we really want to say, well, he wasn't a full real person? And you see the asexual movement that's reacting against that. And I get it. It feels so intuitively correct in our modern moment that love is love, and I, I am free, and it's good to self-determine in every possible way here. But understand that this is incredibly new in a construction of personhood in the history of the world. In the history of the world where who we are sexually is so central. Nobody has thought that until this late Western moment where when it comes to sex, it is only defined by me. And if any community definition comes upon me, I'm being repressed and attacked and hated. And then also completely divorced from biology. And who I am sexually is at the core of who I am. A German philosopher who's an expert in Nietzsche said this, these days sexuality is equated with the truth of the individual, which is arguably our era's most prominent fiction regarding the nature of truth. This fiction, however, was already being circulated back in the 19th century. So I would put it this way. In this cultural moment, when we self-determine in polysexual directions, it can feel very, it does feel very important and self-chosen and freely chosen. It's also at the same time something that's deeply enculturated. And we're doing what the culture is prescribing that we do in moments such as this. But is that a stable or sufficient way to construct an identity? 
I wonder. And there are voices even from the progressive left that say, I'm not sure we're getting out of this what we hoped. An author that I like named Vivian Gornick, who grew up in the 60s with the Love Revolution, has commented that, okay, we're, we have this revolution now, but where are we? She says, we have all had long experience of the sexual freedom once denied and have discovered firsthand that the making of self from the inside out is not to be achieved this way. Not only does sexual ecstasy not deliver us to ourselves, one must have a self already in place to know what to do with it, should it come. And more recently, in the Atlantic Magazine, talking about the same thing, our enlightened, valueless, stim valueless stigma regarding sexual practice hasn't translated into anything like a paradise of guilt-free fun. What if all this sexual freedom is a red herring? And it doesn't deliver on what we think that it's promising to us. Some practical things here. What does this mean politically for us? And I've said in this series multiple times, I'm not a politician, I'm not a priest. I don't really care about what the state does with, with sexuality and definitions of marriage. Your mileage might vary on this. Uh, and look, whether it's marriage or other things, the U.S. government today has a lot more in common with biblical values than pagan Rome did in the original te New Testament context. And I see a deafening silence when Paul and other New Testament writers, they're just saying, be the church and let the state be the state. And also, in my view, the church is better off not as a moral majority, but as a humble minority. I think that's a better place for the church to be. So I don't have strong feelings and strong opinions about political stuff. And I don't think the New Testament compels me in that direction. And practically speaking, too, I've gotten pushback from a couple of conservative pastors saying that I shouldn't say this. I'm unpersuaded, so I'll, I'll still say it. Like, I understand that I could be wrong about human sexuality. I could be wrong. And believe me, I am more convicted as I go back to the scriptures than I've ever been, convicted enough to preach a sermon like this. But no, I'm, I'm not infallible, so I could be wrong. And so for everybody at the church that I pastor, the warning and the welcome is the same. A warning against sexual immorality, and then a welcome to seek to align with the ways of Jesus. And if you're somebody who identifies along the LGBTQIA plus spectrum and would think, I just can't abide being here in a place that's not completely open and affirming of who I am, I would say, I would want you to go to a progressive church and believe in Jesus and his mercy a ton. And that's where I get pushback from conservative pastors that say, well, you're just giving people a way out. And to me, it's not giving a way out, it's a way up because we all need the mercy of Jesus anyway. So not moral majority, less in that direction, more humble minority. And practically speaking again, no matter who you are, no matter how you identify, you are both loved and called. You're both loved and called. And sometimes I wish that I heard from church, and I don't like the language of conservative progressive when it comes to Christian theology, loved and called, Sometimes I hear conservative churches or pastors fail to communicate the love part. No matter who you are, on any spectrum, you are loved by God. You are every bit as created in the image of God and therefore beautiful, beautiful as anybody else at all. You're loved. And likewise, we are all called. 
And that's what I don't hear enough from my progressive brothers and sisters within the church and outside of the church, where God is still Lord of our bodies, and we're called to live in certain ways. And there are resources out there. They're not going to be, you know, put in mainstream media, but lots of resources out there that say, hey, if you want to live a life within the church of singleness, and not in a weird or bad conversion therapy way, but have an opposite-sex marriage when that's not your exclusive attraction, there, there are tons of resources and supports that are very real and on the ground that actually says it's hard, but there can be a life of flourishing for you within God's plan, which brings us back to community. We need each other for this. There is a Zoom call among Liberty pastors this past week talking about how our churches need to be places that welcome and support sexual minorities more. And if I'm somebody that's being asked in a community of faith to live singly, I'm going to need brothers and sisters. I'm going to need deep community and communal resources so that I can feel filled and loved because it's not good for us to be alone. It takes sacrifice to be the community that Jesus has called us to be, to be a countercultural community, not just in this way, but in all ways. This is where we'll land. We need the sacrifice of Jesus for this. We need the sacrifice of Jesus. One of my favorite recent authors, Robert Stone, says about community, our having each other is both the good news and the bad. That's creation and fall right there. Our having each other, that's really good news. But it's also bad news because we have each other. It was Sartre that ended his no-exit play saying, hell is other people. If we're going to live in community with one another, we're going to sin against each other, we're going to get really mad at each other, we're gonna, our towers are going to be buzzed constantly, we need the forgiving grace of Jesus. This passage concludes with the man and the woman being naked, unashamed in verse 25. That's going to change in the fall, starting next week. After the first sin of taking the fruit, they're naked and ashamed. But Jesus, as the second Adam, was stripped almost naked on the cross. He was shamed on the cross for us and took upon himself all of our guilt and shame to die and to rise again to give freedom and life in abundance forever to any and every that come to him. He bore the burden of sin so that we could live in and live out forgiveness. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.